Hello and welcome to the third and final part of our discussion of Series 1 on Lots of Planets Have a North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. Uh, I'm Kira. Beth and we. I'm Jacob. Oh, good. Very on theme. <laughs> <laughs> Although, um, yeah, it's a shame we're not starting with Boomtown. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> what we are starting with is the empty tile the Doctor dances. Mm. Please let me in, Mummy. You all right? Please let me in. You mustn't let him touch you. What happens if he touches me? Make you like him. And what's he like? I've got to go. Nancy, what's he like? He's empty. He's him. He can make phones ring, he can. Just like with that police box you saw. really good mm-hmm. like it's it's famously really good more more so than any other um story this series i think you'd probably be hard-pressed to find someone who didn't like it at least somewhat it's probably you know when we were talking about season seven we talked about the kind of the iconic moments from season seven the autons breaking out of the window and the the ambassadors in the spacesuits and i think uh, the are you my mommy is the moment from this uh, this series that everyone kind of remembers. It seems to have scarred my sister for life, for one. So whenever she encounters a small child in a gas mask asking, is she its mummy? She's terrified. Um, it happens on the reg. <laughs> it really does. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I think its use of its setting is very interesting, which is something I want to come back to. Mm. Yeah, um, I think that certainly shortly after this series came out and probably for a while after, if you'd asked me what my favourite story in this series was, I probably would have said this one. Um, I think partly just because of the memorableness of the gas mask people and also because of how terrifying they are. I mean, I remember my sister, who would have been about sort of seven when this came out, was um, scared of the scared of the bombs mommy no she was scared of the gas mask creature um after watching them and i was sort of making fun of her and then i just remember having like a horrifying nightmare myself after having made fun of my sister for being scared for context my sister when this when this came out was 26 they're still scary at any age like yeah it's Mm. that's part of the thing but like um yeah so i got my comeuppance with that one (laughs) um but i think um I mean, I go on to have issues with Stephen Moffat writing Doctor Who, but I think that, like, this is kind of obviously him at his best. I think there's some really, like, clever plotting done. I actually think that the setup and the payoff for the nanogenes is really well done, um, in that it's not obvious that that's going to be the thing that's caused everything. It kind of gradually unfolds. And I think that pulling off that kind of convincing resolution to a mystery in like a sci-fi context can be quite difficult without mm. it sounding you like you've just been like oh it was the flubbly jubbly blop all yeah. along but i think that the way that they work is established very well but not in a way that's like here's a MacGuffin for you mm. hey remember these boys yeah yeah i've actually i've got some things that i sort of like less about it these days but i still 
really like it. Yeah, uh, I think it's excellent. Really, really innovative. Again, as you said, it's intricately plotted. Yeah, and it, it just it works, as I sort of said about Father's Day, it works thematically really well together. The 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 alien element of it isn't it doesn't seem superfluous or out of place. It's it's really nicely welded into the the whole story and the aesthetic, uh, and it's got a really great atmosphere to it. Yeah, it's just really good. Yeah, I mean, following on from that, I I really really like the use that this this story makes of its setting, because so the Blitz is like it's a really kind of obvious iconic setting for something like Doctor Who. Like, it's inevitable that there would be a Doctor Who episode set in the Blitz at some point. Um, just because it's such a, such a kind of touchstone for, to a weird extent, English identity. And, yeah, no, no, don't, um, don't worry, I'm going to get to that. But um, <laughs> what I really, really like is that it doesn't just take that setting and plonk a Doctor Who adventure in there. It makes very careful use of the, the materiality of that setting. Uh, so obviously on the gas masks, the kind of the um, the fact that gas masks are terrifying <laughs> to look at, and the fact that they are quite ubiquitous as well in our images of the time. There's tons and tons of photographs that you can see of like families gathered together all wearing their gas masks and looking so creepy. Mm. So this makes great use of that. Uh, it also makes great use of the of the contemporary technology, so gramophones and typewriter. I really like the typewriter moment, yeah. which actually was apparently a really late addition. It was um, like the story was coming in like a couple of pages under and some off I just threw that in and it's great. Yeah. It's one of the creepiest moments of the whole thing. And so it takes these things that are very integral to the setting and very recognizably part of that setting and sort of weaponizes them as it were. Mm. And it's also got clever things like the early on when the the doctor asks, has anything fallen from the sky recently? And everyone's just like, mm. <laughs> well, <laughs> and it does it does some strange things with its uh, 1940s setting, which again, I'll get on to in a minute, which are kind of some of the things generally some of the things I like less about the story, especially from a contemporary viewpoint. Mm. But it makes a point of reminding you where you are in history, because at the end, I mean, at the end of the story, the, the doctor says, um, you know, have a good life. Don't forget the welfare state. And actually, weirdly, the, the, the advent of the welfare state is kind of haunting this story. Mm. I choose to believe, based on Instagram evidence, that that was an ad lib by Christopher Eccleston. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. It's very possible. But um, yeah. at the same time, I think, given the kind of the material deprivation that is throughout this story... Mm. Um, I, I think that's that's very deliberate. It feels very right for the Doctor to be saying it at that time, but also for it to be Christopher Eccleston's Doctor yeah. that gets to pass on that message, I think. It's also got one of my favourite cliffhanger resolutions as well. Yeah, um, and yeah. I mean, this is the perfect um, kind of counterpoint to what I was talking about with Aliens of London World War Three, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, because here we have a cliffhanger that feels entirely entirely organic and entirely natural within the the flow of the episode yeah. mm-hmm. and whose resolution flows really nicely as well and actually pays off as well mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. setting up something that will pay off a few minutes down the line yeah. it's 
I, which I'd completely forgotten until I rewatched the episode, actually. But that go to your room, yeah. it's very, very clever. Yeah. It's And it's it's funny as well, but it's not like they're just sort of dismissing the threat with a yeah. joke. Yeah. It's like an actual, it makes logical sense within the like framework that's been established and the kind of intelligence that the gas mask people have. Yeah. It works really, I, th- I think, really beautifully with everything else in it. Mm. Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel like the kind of cliffhanger where it's like, oops, I guess that wasn't a thing now. Yeah. It's like he's thought of something and that idea is what works to... Yeah. Yeah. He's like, the you know, the inference is that he's he's thought of that thing kind of between episodes, as yeah. it were, in the, like, few seconds. And, like, I do think that the... The fact that it sort of sets up for an even bigger escalation when the creature shows up, yeah, as you're saying, in what is his room, mm. is like incredible. I love mm. that, and that with the tape stopping. Oh god, that's, yeah, like, that's another lovely. Moment. Like the typewriter is scary, but I think that the tape is like the bit that yeah. like yeah. is the kind of height of creepy sensation mm. for me in that episode. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in this is like in some ways, almost as close as Doctor Who ever gets to horror. Mm, well, Outright horror. Blink. Blink as well, Again, I think. yeah. But I, I think that actually re-watching this, the kind of, the fact that the the gas masks are made of organic matter because yeah. they are grown onto their faces. Yeah. Oh, God, it's is so like, horrible. And that is some, like, body horror stuff. Like. There's that really visceral description that Nancy gives to the soldier who's transforming about yeah. about um, it feels like there's something forcing its way up your throat. Oh, and yeah. That's I, awful. Think, um, I think this might be a fact that's in my book, but apparently they actually... Uh, the bit where uh, my boy, Dr. Constantine, mm. where he's turning into one, they mm. cut a sound effect of his skull cracking. Yes, I heard this. Because they were like, that's too much. Yeah. Mm. And I don't think that it needed that, but I think that that shows kind of like the... I think the fact they thought through how you would transform into one in the sort of very bodily, visceral way yes. really pays dividends in how horrifying and scary the concept is. Because yeah. when you know how it happens and what's going to happen, it's just... Even though, like, obviously the special effect of it happening is, like, looks a bit ropey to us now... I don't think that it... I think that's one of the instances where it's like, it doesn't matter. Like, you know what's happening and mm. it gets it across and it's still yeah. really horrifying. I still think it looks okay, actually, I must say. Mm. Um, but by the standards of the kind of the, the CGI going on in this series. Oh, yeah, no, in the, in the series, it's like, mm. it's fine. I was just meaning, like, if you compare it against, like, a more modern yeah, effect yeah. that you could do now, it obviously looks a bit lacklustre, but you don't really need it to look... In, it doesn't matter... Like, mm-hmm. it, it's, in, it doesn't really matter what it looked like because it's one of those things where it's like you believe in the bubble wrap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's precisely what I was thinking that's of. That's yeah. the example of, like, that but for CGI. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Before this war began, I was a father and a grandfather. Now I'm neither, but I'm still a doctor. Yeah. Now the feeling. I suspect the plan is to blow up the hospital and blame it on a German bomb. Probably too late. I know. There are isolated cases... <coughs> isolated cases breaking out all over London. Stay back, stay back. <coughs> Listen to me. Top floor. 
room 802. That's where they took the first victim, the one from the crash site. And you must find Nancy again. Nancy? It was her brother. She knows more than she's saying. She won't tell me, but she... Me. We will turn to the thing that I didn't particularly like on reviewing. And again, this is something that is just really dated badly. And dated badly in a very, very specific way. Which is the portrayal of the Battle of Britain and of, of London within the Battle of Britain. Mm. That's a very, very historically loaded thing. The notion of Britain in World War II, and particularly at that point in World War II, before America and Russia had entered the war. And the notion of, like, one tiny island that said no actually has a little bit of justification, even though the UK isn't just one island. <laughs> um, <laughs> the thing is, that is... It's a national myth. And it's a national myth that in 2005 was relatively benign Mm. uh, or at least hadn't acquired the cultural weight that it does now or that it has now. The problem is we are here in 2019 where that specific myth, the idea of Britain as the kind of the lone standard bearer against the the Nazi tide has, ironically enough, become a a touchstone for xenophobic nationalism. Uh, I mean, the the best source I can give on this is uh, Fintan O'Toole's book, Heroic Failure, Mm -hmm. which it's like it's got the subtitle is Brexit and the Politics of Pain. I've been dancing around the B word, but you know, which is about the way in which sort of national myths of World War II which are simultaneously self-aggrandizing and heroic but also kind of weirdly masochistic and I like I don't think this episode is particularly kind of consciously playing into that kind of thing like I say it's giving voice to what is a national myth in kind of quite a mainstream and really like not particularly remarkable way in 2005 it just looks so different now in 2019 and that's like that's not really Stephen Moffat's fault um you could maybe make a case that he's uncritically repeating a kind of national mythology and I think that would be fair but uh, I mean it's it's not at all the worst thing the worst a uh, kind of it is not among the most heinous of his crimes <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even going to put that on him. I was going to say it's not the most problematic thing going on in this series. Oh, but, yeah, that too. <laughs> um, yeah, it it just it seems quite yeah. dodgy now. Yeah. Mm. I think the fact that... Uh, it's interesting because this is exactly this. I've written all this stuff down okay. as well. <laughs> so I'm constantly there. But um, I think the fact that it's the Doctor who says it and characterises yes. it in this way. Mm. Yes. So, you know, he, sa- he literally says, a mouse in front of a lion... One tiny damp little island said no. Yeah, like, it, it 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 gives it gives the that opinion a weight that it shouldn't have. Yeah, and it I think the reason why it's so deeply problematic is because, like you said, it has this this uh, it creates this narrative of Britain as heroic, which erases the fact 
that Britain has, first of all, a history of a large fascist movement within Britain yeah, at yeah. the time, led by Oswald Mosley primarily. It also erases the fact, all the atrocities of colonialism mm-hmm. and the fact that Britain effectively invented concentration camps yeah. in the Boer War. <laughs> also the fact that what was standing against Nazi Germany wasn't one lone little island. Yeah. The UK yeah. isn't just one lone yeah. little island, but it was also the British Empire, yeah. the yeah. biggest empire on the planet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's still at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, it, of course, the problem is as well that it's not... I think what I'm really concerned about is the fact that it's not just that one comment... It feeds through in terms of the way in which Rose is dressed in the Union Jack and all that kind of thing. I, like that, that concerns me. In the, I, I don't know. But I think the only thing that I would say to kind of flip it round that I thought of is that you could say there's a degree of self-reflexivity about it, very tenuously. Or perhaps you could say that there's maybe an, an unconscious guilt about it in the sense that the whole stories about the empty child and the child is described as being empty and you know he's wearing this gas mask which is this iconic image of the second world war Mm. and the fact that he is supposed to be sort of empty behind that maybe suggests that what's behind that image is is vacuous and doesn't necessarily reveal the whole history of what what was happening at the Mm. time and the fact that the nanogenes are rewriting people's DNA and effectively turning them into zombies that are all the same as everyone else, but they're not quite... They're, they're turning people into things that aren't quite like the original. You know, they're yeah. not quite like what people are supposed to be like. Maybe, I don't know, acts as some metaphor for the way in which the war will be remembered after the Reconstruction. And the fact that the gas mask is this iconic image is mm. welded on mm, mm. Uh, just to, to the flesh, you know, kind of suggests the way in which the individual experience and the complexities of it are kind of not being accessed through this story. But I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't really... For me, that isn't strong enough to negate the... Yeah, I'd have to agree. I, the, yeah. I like the reading, but I think yeah. that that's like a charitable... Yeah. yeah. Well, that was reading. the thing. I, I like the reading, which is why I brought it up, but I don't, I don't yeah. think... That's why I said maybe an unconscious thing, because I yeah. just don't... I mean, the thing tenuous. is, it is definitely... I would like to hope that it's not still how World War II is taught mm. in British schools, but it probably is. Yeah. But it is like the kind of high school version of World War Two that you get taught mm. and so I think it's just a kind of like a, an adoption of a like a national myth mm. in a, a popular way that, narrative. Yeah, yeah, in a way that like doesn't complicate it. Yeah. And it does look more dodgy now, but it would still have been it's still like bad history. Yeah. <laughs> mm. And um I guess it's not until Demons of the Punjab that we see like the Empire's role in the Second World War. Yeah. So it's not one that like the show is anxious to correct. And then we also have like Winston Churchill popping up at some point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I don't really remember much about that, but I think that was probably for the best. So I think that like Definitely. it's more interesting if you've got a show where you can travel to the past, if you look at like alternate ways of viewing that past. Mm-hmm. Like a really good example recently is when um Bill meets the Roman soldiers and they're talking about oh, yeah. how like 
they're all normal and like boys and girls and then mm. one of them just likes boys or something yeah and like i mean i don't know if that's i don't know if that's necessarily how romans would have talked about that but it's nice mm. to see like a view that has at least equal historical justification mm. probably more than the mm. idea that like romans were proud heterosexual males <laughs> So I mean I think in that instance I don't care if it has historical weight. I think it's it's something that is nicely relevant to yeah. now and that's what yeah. matters. And um yeah, so that and that's like a nice moment as well for, for Bill and her yeah, interactions yeah, with the true. past. So I think that there are ways of of looking at things that can be complicate more complicated than what the casual assumptions are, and I don't think this episode does that. It does a lot of other things very well. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is one, like, awkward thing. Also, I'm not... I find it a bit weird when Rose does the whole, like, we win thing to yeah. then see. Yeah. Just because, like, the... I think it works as for how Rose's character would explain that to someone like Nancy. However, I find it weird in terms of ethical time travel. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, um, the framing of it as, like, the UK versus... Germany, but yeah. then that is maybe what will inspire Nancy and give her hope. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of more okay with that one for for exactly those reasons. And it's just Nancy, and she's only yeah. like one young woman mm-hmm. in like the middle of what must seem to her like the end of civilization. Well, she pretty so, much says that. Fact, yeah. yeah, actually, uh, this kind of links into some of my other stuff because I find it a bit weird when the doctor like kind of asks her how old she is and then is like old enough to have a baby anyway or whatever it is but I do on the whole quite like the whole the way that Nancy and her son is like set up and how there is like a way out for them at the end because one thing that I had confused in my memories of this episode was I was like oh wait but then what happens to them she's still like a probably teenage single mum in like the 1940s that's not great but actually the episodes the stories themselves set up the idea that oh there's dr constantine and he's like friends with nancy and respects her he was a father and a grandfather before the Mm. war so has that kind of gap in his life Mm. and clearly has like loads of compassion and so then when the doctor at the end of the episode says nancy will go to dr constantine for help you can kind of believe like of course he's gonna help them like he's a nice guy and i also really like the thing that i particularly like about the character of dr constantine is he's not somebody famous He's just, like, a doctor, doctor, Mm -hmm. but, like, a a man with compassion and who's been through a lot and who wants to do the best for the people in his care, which actually ties quite nicely into the don't forget the welfare state thing because Mm. he's Mm -hmm. kind of a symbol of the good that that could provide in that he's helping, like, everyone, including children like Nancy and her Mm. younger brother son sorry i'm just caught (laughs) i'm caught up in the yeah (laughs) she really sold it like (laughs) i believed it (laughs) but um yeah i just like the fact that it's not about whether we whether he's remembered or whether like he becomes a famous boy or not yeah he's just like he doesn't do the tell me will i be remembered (laughs) yeah it's just like he does his job well, performs mm. his duties as a medical doctor mm. and does so with care and compassion for the people around him. And I think that it's lovely that that's just like, that's him, that's his story. They don't need to do that. Oh, what was your name? And then he's like... I'm an iron bed. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more of this national health service. <laughs> so like, 
I mean, not that they ever quite do it like that cheesily, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've come close. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I have thoughts about the Vincent Van Gogh episode. Mm. <laughs> so I guess the other thing that I was thinking of is like the character of Jack is introduced in these mm-hmm. episodes, obviously. So Well, actually, before we get on to that, ah. um, I just wanted to pick up on what you were saying about kind of where Nancy and Jamie end up. Be- because I think this series as a whole has a focus on families. So, I mean, obviously, in Father's Day... As I say, it's a kind of introduction of the idea of the companion's family, far more so than ever before. And here we have a a focus on, obviously there's a biological familial relationship at the the heart of it, but there's also the notion of found families Mm -hmm. in where uh, Nancy and Jamie end up with Dr. Constantine, but also in the, the children. Yeah. The children that she is acting as a kind of surrogate mother to. Mm. Or, or older sister, depending on how you want to see it. I mean, that's kind of like another example of how good the setup is for a lot of the payoff because you can see her being like acting older than her age and being like this maternal figure yeah. to them. Mm. But then actually, it turns out that at least part of that is probably that she is a mother and so she's kind of like extending that maternal instinct to like all mm. the children mm. that need her kind of which i think is particularly nice because it's never explicitly uh, referred to mm. but it's there and it's it's evident there's just so much in these episodes that like is set up to pay off really well like yeah. i think we were talking mm. about earlier the person whose leg grows back mm. and um when they're sort of waiting for Jack in the hospital they're in a room that has like wheelchairs and prosthetic limbs yeah so even though that's not like a big thing it's establishes the fact that there are people in the hospital that are being treated for like um limbs that have needed amputating Mm. or like various Mm. other like catastrophic wartime injuries so it's kind of like a little bit of a, a setup for that Okay, this can function as a sonic blaster, a sonic cannon, Mommy. and a turbo enfolded sonic disruptor. Doc, what you got? I, I've got a sonic cannon. Oh, never mind. What? It's sonic. Okay, let's leave it at that. Disruptor, cannon, what? It's sonic. Totally sonic. I am sonic to oh. A sonic what? Screwdriver! Uh, so yes, let's talk about Jack then. I kind of like, so I do like Jack in this episode, but I kind of go back and forth about how I feel about him overall. Hmm. Partly because of like, Torchwood. Yeah. I'm not sure how I feel about the fact of him being, like, implied to be pansexual because he's from the future. Because mm. I get... I, I like the idea that there is more openness towards different identities in the future, but I'm not... I, I find it weird that, like, that it's kind of implied to be something like everybody does, but then I guess maybe everybody does. I don't know. It's kind of weird. And I think that I have more problems with the character of Jack in the context of Torchwood. Yeah. So mm. I think that I'm maybe being unfair to start bringing all of that baggage to his first appearance in the show. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's fair to raise this kind of thing, but, like, I mean, we spent quite a bit of time talking about New Earth earlier, which is, like, <laughs> in a different series. Yeah. But well, it was relevant to what we were talking about. Maybe relevant to Jack. <laughs> yeah, I think this might be the best use of him in Doctor Who. Mm. I think. Um, yeah. I mean, he's yeah. he's fine in Bad Wolf Party of the Ways, and he's fine in Utopia, Sound of Drums, Last of the Time Lords. Nothing is fine in Stolen Earth, Journey's mm. End. Um, but we'll get to that. I think generally I'm okay with him in in Doctor Who. Yeah. I think that it is kind of 
I mean, I know that we're not talking about Bad Wolf Parting of the Ways yet, but the running joke of him, like, flirting with everybody is quite cute. Yeah. Mm. Um, I quite like that. I also think that, like, oh, God, how have I forgotten the name of the actor that plays Captain Jack? Someone John Barrowman. John Barrowman is, like, a fun presence to have around mm. when he's yeah. given, like, oh, yeah. this all this, like, charismatic stuff to be doing and, mm. like, wowing everybody and wowing Rose on, like, this invisible spaceship over London. It's quite fun. Mm. Also, this is the second use of Glenn Miller in Doctor Who after uh, Shada. Yes, after oh. the um, the a cappella group singing Chattanooga Choo Choo. Which is just the kind of thing that happens in Cambridge, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that's a theme. <laughs> well, it certainly is at this point. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of Glenn Miller in this 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 story, so mm. I think it, it's a, a theme by the end. And yet pop music doesn't exist yet, apparently. Yeah, that's not true. Mm. Uh, there were people like properly theorizing popular music in the 1940s. But anyway. <laughs> but still, Jamie's gonna like become a teenager at like a really good time to be a teenager. Oh yeah, yeah. for sure. And when the concept is being invented. Yeah, he's gonna invent the concept. The little rambunctious teen. Mm. Oh, know. he's gonna be in a skiffle group, isn't he? Oh, I'm so happy for him. <laughs> And for everyone, just this once, everybody lives! <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for that to come up. I mean, yeah, we didn't talk about that, because that is a really lovely moment in the in the context of Doctor Who. Yeah. Mm. And it's a moment that I could really... Like, I talk, I've been talking a lot about this, this series being, like, written by fans. And, like, a moment like that can only be written by someone who is quite conversant with the history of Doctor Who. Mm. Who knows that people die all the time in Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of... It's, like, weird collateral damage that the Doctor drags around with him. Mm. And so the notion of not only everybody getting to live in an episode, but the Doctor being so jubilant that he, um, for once, he's not leaving death in his wake. Mm. He's leaving life. It's also nice in the context of the Blitz because it's like mm. he did not bring any additional suffering to a place that was already, like, devastated by war. He, like, made a thing better and yeah. loads of people are going to get to be, like, hopefully living full and happy lives. Gave people their legs back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it is... It, I feel like it's... It's probably a moment that I, like, occasionally make fun of in, like, other contexts. But, like, when when people get brought back to life as, like, a cheap thing mm. in various stuff, not just Doctor Who. Mm. But it is very sweet and... Christopher Eccleston really like sells it. Yeah, he's like so yeah. overjoyed. <laughs> I like to see Christopher Eccleston happy. That's, That's my like main <laughs> aim. <laughs> I spared her life. You let one of them go, but that's nothing new. Every now and then, a little victim's spared because she smiled, because he's got freckles, because they begged, and that's how you live with yourself. That's how you slaughter millions. Because once in a while, on a whim, if the wind's in the right direction, you happen to be kind. Only a killer would know that. Is that right? From what I've seen, your funny little happy-go-lucky life leaves devastation in its wake. Always moving on, because you dare not go back. Playing with so many people's lives, you might as well be a god. Shall we move on to Boomtown? If we must. <laughs> Why not? I think we must. Yeah. Um, Bethan, do you want to start us off on this one? Yes, yeah, so I don't like this, like, really at all. Um, 
Yeah, I noticed under the episode title you've written, not, not good. good. <laughs> just, like, just in case I forgot to mention that, it's not good. <laughs> like, I think that this is the part where the Slitheen really get... Like, when I said that a lot of the bad stuff I thought was in Aliens of London World War Three is actually in Boomtown, mm. this is where the bad stuff is. There's, like, loads and loads of farting at the beginning, but then it can, like, magically stop once they're trying to do, like, a serious moment. There's also this whole, like, extended thing of just um, Margaret Slothene, like, running backwards and forwards, which I think yeah. the joke is, like, she's yeah. fat but also running, mm. which is, like, not very nice. There's a weird moment where um, she seems to be going good at the beginning because of the concept of a baby. Yeah. Which is because she's a girl, Savine, I guess. I don't really know. It's even weirder because she she starts that when the reporter is like, oh, my boyfriend doesn't believe me. And she's like, boyfriend? By implication, she doesn't yeah. actually say that. <laughs> which is weird because like, if she's exiled from her... If her and her family have been exiled from her planet then she would never have had the prospect of, like, having a boyfriend or a baby because, like, I mean, even if they is, if that is how they reproduce, I don't know, because it was only her family that mm. she'd be meeting that were, like, fellow members of her species. So, like, unless she gets really lucky, that was never going to be a thing. But also, it's just, like, a weird moment because then it doesn't really lead to anything at all. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, maybe she's, like, learned to be good and she just loves the Cardiff nightlife or something. But actually... She's like still betrays. She still like double crosses in the end, even mm. though she gets turned into an egg, or whatever. Um, so it was all pointless, and the big chat that they have in the restaurant is like not worth anything. Mm. And also weird use of Cardiff in the um. So this is where like the bad wolf thing becomes really obvious if it wasn't yeah. already, because they've chosen Blythe Rug as the. She says it really weird in the episode as well. She's like, Blydrug. So it's like really weird because, shock, people in Wales speak Welsh, so they would know that this was called the Bad Wolf Project. And I feel like you'd want some context for that other than just like, I picked words because words are fun. Like she could have ended up with like anything at all. Um, My suggestion is... Puss God Punky, which is Punky Fish. <laughs> I think Rose should have put that throughout history because that's, like, her thing. Mm. Um, but also, like, the it kind of plays into, like, this quite English perception of Welsh as, like, mm. a language that doesn't really mean anything and that nobody speaks, which is obviously completely false. But, like, the fact that you could just pick any two words in Welsh and, like, nobody's going to question mm. your decision is quite odd. There's also the, like, weird joke about, oh, they didn't realise that it said danger explosives because it was only written in Welsh. And, like, I'm pretty sure that, like, the Welsh for explosives is not going to be a million miles away from explosives. But also, like, that's just kind of not how anybody does things. And Mm. it's kind of like the joke is that nobody speaks Welsh. And then there's also the fact that the idea of them putting this power station in Cardiff Bay is I th- I'm not sure if it's supposed to be a joke or not. It's really not clear. I don't think. But mm. there's the, there is like a history of um, places where people live in Wales being mm. um, destroyed for industrial efforts. Like mm. there was Truerin Valley, 
where people lived, but then they had to clear out of their homes so that the valley could be flooded to make, I think, a reservoir. Mm-hmm. And so th- it's not like that's not without a pretext. So it's either kind of tone deaf to use that as just like a jokey Slitheen plan, or it's like has some weird... I don't know why you would intentionally recall the memory mm. of something like that. And then also there's the bit where like um, Rose says oh, won't anybody in London stop this from happening about the power station? Mm. And then Margaret Slovene's like, people in London don't care about Cardiff, which is, like, really weird because then it's, like, the good thing to happen would apparently be for, like, London to intervene in, like, Welsh Mm -hmm. politics. So it's, like, there's something really weird going on there. I don't think that what most people in Wales would want is more interference Mm. from England in their business. And in that case, the implication is like, oh, this is only going ahead because there is not enough English interference in Cardiff, which is absolutely bizarre. It's Mm. also particularly bizarre because it's not that long after devolution, is it? It's 2005. Uh, yeah, I think the I think certainly I think the yeah. National Assembly building is quite new because yeah. they use it as like a futuristic yeah, yeah. location yeah. in Doctor Who. Yeah. I feel like it's the perfect combination of not being a good episode and also having some like <laughs> yeah. weird stuff going on in the background mm. that like makes me not like it. <laughs> Change my mind. <laughs> No intention of changing your mind. Thank you. <laughs> um, so my memory was that this was kind of an interesting sort of addendum to the series, that it's it's a kind of a nice, interesting change of pace. Uh, it's like a slow-paced episode, uh, quite a static one, where the Doctor gets to, like, sit down with a, an enemy and have, like, a, a chat that brings up some interesting ethical dilemmas. And I was wrong. <laughs> um, those ethical dilemmas are not good. For one thing, it's the kind of thing Doctor Who has done before, better, many times, mm. and will do again, many times, better and just as badly, I think. And it, like, this is something that Bethan kind of touched on, but, like, it does this weird thing where it tries to make us, it seemingly tries to make us feel sorry for Margaret, while she is trying to, actively trying to kill the Doctor. At the same time with the, like, poison dart and the, the gas and, and these weird jokes. But it's also becomes clear by the end that her contrition is arbitrary and opportunistic mm. and superficial at best. So, like, what ethical point are we meant to take from all of this, really? I, like, and this is besides the idea that she confronts the Doctor with, like, Oh, how are you any better than me if you kill me? He, for some strange reason, doesn't say, I didn't want to blow up this planet. Mm. And it's kind of, I think it's weird because she tries to guilt them with being like, if you send me back to my planet, they'll just execute me. But then it's like, well, what are they supposed to do? They can't just keep you here where you're clearly trying to like destroy. Mm. I don't know. Also, something I forgot to mention before is the fact that like Blyde, Droog isn't even how you would write Bad Wolf in Welsh. It's Blythe Droog because there's a mutation. And I'm not mm. sure. I'm not Welsh. I just have some knowledge of it because my dad speaks Welsh. So this might be like nitpicky, but like it's not. They haven't written it right, mm. basically, which is like also kind of weird considering that it's quite a big point that it is Bad Wolf. 
Mm. Um, but then maybe that's just showing the callow surface level adoption of like human slash Welsh culture of Margaret Slodine and it's all part of like the master plan and mm. Mm. the Slodine were actually a good idea all along. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think they're awful, but I just think that it's funny how like big they tried to go with yeah. the Slodine. Mm. Mm. Oh, and there's also like Mickey's there. Oh yeah, I guess he is. I'm, I'm happy to see him, like... Mm. Mickey's there, Jack's just about there. There's loads of, like, annoying stuff where they're all like, oh, high fives, and Mickey's like, that's cheesy, and I'm like, Mickey, you speak the words of my heart. <laughs> because, like, they're so cringy. <laughs> I mean, Jacob, do you love and adore this episode oh, by any chance? Yeah, yeah. Do you worship uh... at the altar of Margaret Slithy? <laughs> That's another weird thing, actually. Like, they consistently call her Margaret, even though she tells them her real name. Mm. Margaret was never her name. And it's, a like, a name she stole from a person she killed. It's all part of the ruse. Yeah. Margaret shows her adoption of human norms. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Right. But, yeah, I've... Um, I hated this when it first came out. I was like, oh, right, I'm going to watch this again. When I rewatched it, I thought, oh, I wish I could just skip over it. But no, I'll keep an open mind. I'll watch it again. No, it's as bad as I remember. Yeah. <laughs> it has no redeeming qualities. There's some, as you said, some vague attempt at some simplistic narrative about law and justice and all kinds of other stuff. It's, like I said about the end of the world, it's superficial. It's dull, plodding, tonally deaf. I've, yeah, I have nothing good to say about it <laughs> at all. It didn't cost much to make. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's the Torchwood best thing were out. Uh. Mm. Torchwood were out in the woods having their Torchwood orgies. <laughs> Torchwood are off playing rock, paper, scissor with Unit like they always do to see who's going to respond <laughs> to something. Unit didn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> Will we just move on from Blue Yeah, I think yeah. so. I've got nothing to like, say about it's, it's, it's just not even interesting to talk yeah. about. Yeah. On the other hand, Bad Wolf and Party of the Ways. The long-awaited Bad Wolf and Party of the Ways. <laughs> if this message is activated, then it can only mean one thing. We must be in danger, and I mean fatal. I'm dead or about to die any second with no chance of escape. No. And that's okay. Hope it's a good death. But I promise to look after you, and that's what I'm doing. The TARDIS is taking you home. I won't let you. And I bet you're fussing and moaning now. Typical. But hold on and just listen a bit more. The TARDIS can never return for me. Emergency program one means I'm facing an enemy that should never get their hands on this machine. So this is what you should do. Let the TARDIS die. Just let this old box gather dust. No one can open it, no one will even notice it. Let it become a strange little thing standing on a street corner. And over the years, the world will move on and the box will be buried. And if you want to remember me, then you can do one thing. That's all. One thing. Have a good life. Uh, actually, Jacob, do you want to start us off on this? Yeah, um, it's certainly a story of two halves. Yeah. Um, two very distinct <laughs> halves. I, again, from my initial memories of it when I first watched it, I remember not being a fan of the first part. Mm. Enjoying the second part a lot. Mm. Having rewatched it, first part certainly gone up in my estimation. I still think the second part's stronger. But yeah, I think uh, 
I think overall, particularly the final part, I think it wraps things up fairly well. I think it's doing some interesting things in relation to regime change, and I think it's unfortunately doing some problematic things in that sense as well, in terms of, again, how the series as a whole views political change, which I'll go on to. I think I have mixed feelings about the resolution. I think the way Mark Campbell puts it is that it's akin to waving a magic wand, which I can kind of see, but I also think there's some good aspects to it as well. I, I really like, in particular, and I know that you're going to come on to this, the the kind of religious narrative mm. with the Daleks. I think that's really interesting. Religious isn't really the right word. I can't think of what the right word is now. But, yeah, I, th- I think that's that's all good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I um, I would say very similar things, actually. Um, I had always thought of Parking Ways as much better than Bad Wolf on, on a rewatch there, on a more even keel than I remembered. Um, the, I mean, the problem is that Bad Wolf is very much set up mm. for Parking the Ways mm. in a lot of ways. Mm. It's the opposite problem to what Moffat had a few times where his two-part finales were like, the first part was amazing... Yeah. And then the second part was... Well, some people say this about Heaven Sent and Hellbent. I disagree, but we'll get to that. Uh, I really like Hellbent. But anyway, it's actually, I think, um, better in Lanity is maybe Sound of Drums, uh, Last of the Time Lords, which is one where I think Sound of Drums is great. I really, really like it. And then Last of the Time Lords, I can kind of take relief. Whereas here, yeah, you've got a kind of... A first part, which is a lot of setup, and there's really good stuff in there. I mean... Uh, to confront the elephant in the bad wolf room, it's really, really dated. I thought you were going to say the elephant in the Big Brother house. <laughs> I was, I nearly said that actually. Um, yeah, the it's very kind of the TV references are very much two thousand and five references to the point that like I had to really rack my brains to remember what Trini and Susanna were called, and like. Big Brother, I think, is... I think Is Big Brother still on? I'm sure oh, it is somewhere, probably. but I think it's one of those ones that's, yeah. like, moved to, like, weirder time Looking slots and, like, lesser networks I know stuff. it was on Channel 5 for quite a while. Yeah. I don't know if it still is. But anyway. I think it's been eclipsed by uh, the behemoth that is Love Island. Oh, the Leviathan. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God that was Leviathan Island. was out. Um, oh god! <laughs> Can you imagine? Jack would have been there, definitely. I think that, I think that Jack would have like broken the system, mm. <laughs> and I kind of love him for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd be more willing to see that. I think, mm. but yeah, I have some issues with various aspects of what it does, particularly what it does with the Daleks. I think is very, very symptomatic of problems that the new series has with the Daleks I I mean I'm not I don't think I'm going to really say anything in my initial impressions that's going to break the mould of what's already been said I don't think that Bad Wolf is that good but I think Parting of the Ways is pretty strong resolution to the series mm-hmm. I like how it manages to kind of tie various threads of the series together more so than I remembered with um, the sort of futurist, with the with the futuristic world of Satellite Five, but also managing to get Jackie and Mickey in there. In mm. um, is that in Parting of the Ways? Yeah, I knew I liked that one better. <laughs> For like um, 
their kind of contribution to the effort. And it also kind of like wrestles quite interestingly with like, oh, why does it matter if it's so far in the future and you're here in London with us in the way that like, mm. oh, but it's a doctor and people are still going to be hurt and all that kind of stuff. I quite liked, I liked that discussion. I was very distressed when this first broadcast because I did not want Christopher Eccleston to leave at all. Yeah, I still don't. I still, <laughs> like, you know. Um, for ages I was making fun of the bit at the end of this where um, David Tennant goes, Barcelona, because I thought he said it in, like, an annoying way and I was like, he's going to be garbage. <laughs> and then obviously he, like, showed up and it was fine. And, like, I... <laughs> but, like... I was very, very upset. And <laughs> mm. um, so that still lingered. Like, the emotion was still raw. I was still like, who is this guy? <laughs> I think it doesn't help that he looks very weird in Christopher Eccleston's costume. He does, costume. yeah. But, um... I mean, that's always a thing, though, with, uh, with every, every Doctor looks weird in the previous mm, one's costume. True. I think Jodie Whittaker rocked Capaldi's look. I think Jodie Whittaker in Capaldi's costume was yeah. better than Jodie Whittaker in Jodie Whittaker's costume. I, I think it's just... I think that. it's just that she can work any look. I mean, yeah. 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 Um, but that's kind of by the by. Um, <laughs> with the, like, datedness of the shows, it was quite weird at the time because when I was watching them... Um, I don't know, I imagine there were probably children in my class at school who were allowed to watch Big Brother, but I wasn't, so I knew what the weakest link was and, like, nothing else. <laughs> like, I knew of Big Brother because yeah. it was such, like, a thing at the time. Um, so it was kind of confusing. I think it's confusing for a family audience to reference all these shows that are, like, quite a broad demographic. I mean, I mm. guess they wanted to be timely. I My other issue is I don't understand, like... It's the sort of thing with, like, um, The End of the World where I feel like there's a lingering suggestion that there might be a critique of some aspect of society. Yeah. But I cannot figure out for the life of me what that <laughs> critique is supposed to be. Jacob might have got it. I don't oh, know. just wait. Just <laughs> wait. But, like, is it supposed to be that, like, tele- television shows, mass media make people, like, vapid? Because that seems to be what they imply. But then what's the elimination thing? Because, like... You don't even get eliminated on Trini and Susanna, as far as I can tell. I think I it's think just so. a makeup show. As I believe makeover so, yeah. show, yeah. sorry. Me and Kieran were entertaining the possibility that Mickey might be on time team somewhere in Satellite <laughs> 5. <laughs> because oh. that's, like, the good stuff. <laughs> I, I really want to see Robot Tony Robinson. Yeah. Mm. Tony Robin... Robinson. Yeah, I feel like... It's obviously dated, but I don't know if it was, like, that good of an idea at the time. I, I remember thinking it was weird at the time. Yeah, yeah. So I do as well. Yeah. I mean, I got, yeah, yeah. I, like, I got all of the references, and that's it, I knew what the shows were, but like, I still thought it was weird. If people are still watching shows, even though people, like, imp- are implied to die when they get eliminated, is that supposed to be, like, oh, by watching TV, you are doing this thing? Because, I, like... Mm. Do you want to hit me with some knowledge, Jim? Well, well, I, mean, I mean, this wasn't the big thing I was going to say, but I think I think there's certainly some, like you like you said, some kind of superficial attempt at saying this is what happens when there's a there's a vacuum of of news mm. and information because that's what it's about is the fact that Satellite Five stopped broadcasting and so they just they just do wall to wall games. Yeah, mm. it's almost like uh, Wars Society of the Spectacle. You know, mm. it's that that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, um, 
But if there's no think... news, how do they find out the answers to the weakest link questions? <laughs> yeah. But I, I think the, <laughs> the other aspect, and this doesn't work for Trini and Susanna really, but it works for the other stuff, is that the competitive element mm. is clearly about neoliberalism. Uh, well, I, I would say it is anyway. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that our, our TVs at the time and still are saturated by programmes and entertainment programmes, game shows that just reinforce this notion of everyone's self-interested individuals who are trying to improve themselves and get to the top. Mm. The way in which... Um, I can't remember the character's name who goes up against Rose. Roderick. Roderick. Yeah, the way in which he plays the game... And he's so sort of like vicious towards her in terms of I want to win and get the money. Yeah, that and kind not of dying. thing. Yeah, yeah and not die. that kind of thing. I think is indicative of the idea that it's, it's trying to do some, unfortunately, very surface level analysis of mm. of that. I mean, weirdly, what this is reminding me of somewhat. It's a very different episode. I think it's doing different things, but mm. it reminds me a bit of Vengeance on Varus. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can see that. Insofar as it's attempting to do this kind of this this strange kind of satire of some kind of reality TV thing, it's not quite as hopelessly implicated as Vengeance and Varos is because yeah. it doesn't have the same kind of reveling in violence. Mm. But uh, it does a little bit, I think. But I, at the same time, uh, I I still don't think it quite works because I, I yeah. like we've been saying. I think it's. It's not really clear what it's trying to do. Even mm. Mm. it's weird watching it now because um, recently uh, in the UK there's been a number of quite like high-profile cases of mm. people who've been on reality TV shows um, yeah. tragically taking their own lives some time afterwards, and so it feels weird watching it. But I don't think that that is any indication that it predicted something. Mm. I think that. If anything, it shows kind of like the flaw in their idea of like what people would watch as entertainment. Because I think that people who do not win in reality TV shows can still go on to have successful careers, but can also be plagued by like the fame that that comes with yeah. or the notoriety. So I think that there are problems with these kinds of shows, but I think that if it is attempting a critique, then it like completely mm. hits at like the wrong things. Mm. Because it's the same maybe at this time they're critiquing like game shows or shows like Big Brother and then people would critique like structured reality shows like yeah. The Only Way is Essex mm. or Made in Chelsea and stuff and now people are critiquing I guess like influencer mm. culture mm-hmm. so it just gets more and more mm. but quite often the things that like the lazy critiques are not the things that are like harmful so for example in shows like Big Brother there was like it was used like this basically structured reality and like the kind of shows that came before it like Big Brother were used to like demonize working class people a lot mm, of the time mm, yeah. and create these like caricatures that it was easy to laugh at in on like the only way is Essex or to like make rich people sympathetic and made in Chelsea and stuff but that kind of element to it isn't really what yeah. is being got at and so I don't really know what they're trying to do basically I think that they're hitting it like mm-hmm. in terms of using the actual I understand the competition element but I think in yeah. terms of using of the actual shows that they use yeah. they completely like it's such a weird selection of programs mm-hmm. that they completely like miss any kind of critique they could have gone for Yeah, and I think that there is other like media that does the idea of game show where contestants are killed off I'm basically just thinking of the Hunger Games, I'm really sorry, and the reflection that that has on the society that watches mm. them and consumes mm. that media, mm. 
that do it in like a more sustained way. Yeah. Not mm. that like the Hunger Games is perfect in this regard, but I think that in that kind of thing where they where the author created slash nicked from Battle Royale yeah. the concept of the like um <laughs> Of every of, of of how that works, I think that it can be better when you come up with something new rather than just try and be like, yeah. okay, but it's this show, but bad thing. Yeah, it's it's trying to be to be very recognizable, and that's actually kind of an impediment mm. because it's distracting. Yeah. yeah, I do like to think I do I do well I don't like to think this, but I speculate on what if like the the phrase or the concept big brother survives that far into the future but only as the reality tv show and not as like the orwell reference but Mm. like that's just me being (laughs) trying to speculate on things that like have no real meaning i think um if we're talking about the deficiencies of this of this episode it's Mm. worth coming to what I've been building towards. <laughs> right. In, a, in an arc. Yes. The arc of the podcast. Are you saying that this whole setup's been a disguise all along? Going way back. Installing the Jagrafess a hundred years ago. Someone's been playing a long game. Controlling the human race from behind the scenes for generations. So, I think you can definitely argue that one of the big issues with this story and with this series as a whole is its approach to regime change and political change. So we've kind of noted throughout the deep scepticism this series has. So in Aliens of London, World War Three, the way in which politicians are portrayed, the way in which later on Harriet Jones will you know kind of uh, fall as Lucifer fell yes <laughs> I couldn't put it better myself <laughs> and of course in the case of Angel of London World War 3 we see the the, the spectre of Iraq and Afghanistan and I think another aspect of those conflicts is the way in which there's a deep scepticism about intervention regarding those because essentially we went in and made things even worse, hmm. uh, if that's possible. But I think you can you can see that anxiety about regime change come through in in the way in which Bad Wolf and the Parting of Ways relates to the long game. So the Doctor in the long game effectively shuts down Satellite Five, stops it from broadcasting, destroys the Jagrafess, which is supposed to be the embodiment of everything that is wrong with this world and then he just makes some quite flippant comments to Kathka about how oh everything will people start believing a lot of things now the human race will accelerate back to normal mm. and then leaves mm. and this is one of the few instances where the doctor comes back and sees the result of what he's done yeah which i think is actually a more effective critique of the doctor than anything in boomtown yeah 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 absolutely so he he comes back and sees the fact that he's made this world that's even worse than the one that he left and i think you can see within that there's a complicity in the series It's, it's not simply about regime change but it's about a wider issue of the, the the kind of the end of grand narratives or the movement away from grand narratives. Hmm. What you know, Leotard would say, like uh, incredulity towards meta narratives, 
fancy things like that. And the, and the way that manifests itself in in the in the real world is you know kind of a loss of belief in the ability to change the world, and a movement towards more technocratic forms of government. You know, kind of like nudging things rather than big systemic change. Mm. And the fact that the doctor makes things even worse by intervening is kind of indicative of the way in which the program is complicit in that view. The problem is that that view is inherently tied, I would argue, to the and symptomatic to a market economy. You know, like New Labour uh, deciding to not necessarily privatise service, but increasingly put the market into state services is a good example of, of that, rather than trying to do big structural scale change, trying to reduce inequality or whatever. And the fact that the doctor makes things worse by intervening kind of is just plays into this really pessimistic view of political change that we've spoken about before, especially when you contrast it with the classic series where, you know, McCoy's doctor is almost like this chess player who sort of plans plans things out, you know, and the happiness patrol brings down Helen A and then just, again, leaves people to their own devices. Mm. Paradise Towers as well. Paradise Towers, yeah. And I think that's... What what we were kind of saying about the unquiet dead, the reason why I think the unquiet dead is problematic in terms of the whole narrative arc of of the series is the fact that if you're sort of saying as that in as part of the whole series that political change is in, incredibly difficult, if not impossible, which is what seems to be happening, then you can apply the very same thing to the unquiet dead. You know the the scepticism towards doing anything mm. about a refugee crisis mm. because they might be terrible evil people and instead we should just leave things alone that that seems to, that seems to be the message that i get from this and the idea of just leaving things alone because you might make things worse that's a free market approach yeah. uh, it really is it's the very thing that adam curtis talks about in the trap the idea that we we should believe in the power of the market not democracy because markets are safe, you know, like things which create equilibrium. Mm. But yeah, I'm, I'm rambling, I'm going to stop, but that's where I was going with things. That right. makes any sense whatsoever. So it, <laughs> it absolutely does, yeah. Mm. Like, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because, like, there's a hundred takes out there about the new series, the Davies era, and... Um, Moffat era as well in some ways, but the particularly the Davies era being very progressive in one way or another, and in some ways it is, it absolutely is, in, mm-hmm. in social terms I think it is, yes. absolutely. Yeah, um, but yeah, I think when you when you indulge in this kind of sustained economic critique, it's it's one of those things where like. To go back to your mate Jameson, it's the thing about um, it's harder to imagine, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Mm. Well, mm. it's a series that absolutely imagines the end of the world, um, quite literally, mm. but finds it very difficult to think itself out of kind of systemic circles. Mm. You could argue it's also a, ser- a series that later on will find ways to try to imagine the end of capitalism, but at the same time, uh, I, I think there are there are difficulties with that as well but we can get we can get to that
something I alluded to when I was talking about this episode, well, talking about Parting of the Ways in particular, and I wanted to touch on its kind of treatment of the Daleks. Because this is where I think the oversaturation of the Daleks starts. And in a weird way, it tries to have it both ways. Because it shows us this gigantic uh, invasion fleet of like 200 Dalek ships with like a thousand Daleks on each one. And the numbers are just astronomical and it's all very terrifying. And then it shows us the destruction, the havoc wreaked in Satellite 5 by, I think it's, is it six Daleks? I don't know if it's specifically enumerated. I remember now, maybe. But it's only a handful anyway. Mm. It's only ever a handful. And I think, I mean, I, th- I think the latter is actually far more effective. And um, the latter is why I think this episode generally really gets away with the Daleks as a, as a credible threat. Mm. But it is the beginning of, oh no, there's a billion Daleks over there, which the show will do many times mm. and throughout both the Davies and the Moffat eras. And it's, I think there are times from here on where the Daleks work very well. There are times when even significant numbers... I think I think Doomsday makes it work, for instance. Makes significant numbers of Daleks work. Also makes a small group of Daleks work. Mm. So I think it's marrying those two things, as Party of the Ways does, mm-hmm. seems to be the secret. I think it's difficult because Daleks are cool, so you want a lot of them. But you also yeah. like want the time to appreciate... <laughs> appreciate each one. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say as the individual that they are, but that's exactly um. like the opposite of the point of Daleks. Yeah. <laughs> but it would annoy them, and therefore it's a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that like it's kind of difficult to balance the like question of how many Daleks is too many Daleks. How many do you need to make like a Dalek story work? Because in Dalek, the answer is one. Yeah. But like, if you want to up the ante, then yeah, I hmm. I don't know. I don't think that it's. Unfortunately, I don't think that, like, ever after the episode Dalek, they really get the threat level right for the Daleks, even no, though they're, like... I, I would agree. They're used to, like, greater or lesser success, um, but I think that, like, Dalek does such a good job of establishing, like, this is one of them, this is what it's capable of, this is why they're dangerous, and then, unfortunately, there's a kind of, like, gradual sliding of, like, mm. how dangerous one of them is till, like you kind of need sufficient numbers to yeah. really... Which I can see why it happened. I just wish that, like, it hadn't. <laughs> yeah. And I do think that maybe going so big so soon was part of the mm. part of the problem because once you've seen so many of them taken out, even if it is, like, a series finale, you kind of know that it can be done and it's less impressive when you see it done subsequent times. Yeah, it's the spectacle problem that I kind of have with Davies' finales, mm. to be honest. Mm. I think he likes to go very, very big. Yeah. And I get that impulse, 100%. Like, it's a season finale, you want mm. to go all out. But he tends to do that with just these massive spectacles, which can still work. I mean, again, I'm going to point to Doomsday as one that I think is generally effective as a story and has manages to have that very, very strong emotional content as well. Mm. Well, I think... I mean, I'm going to keep contrasting them for some reason, but, like, Moffat does something a bit different. He tends to up the narrative scale yeah. rather than the spectacle, mm. which I, I, I'm not going to say it's better, but I prefer it. I think it's, it's, it works better for me, at least. I think part of the problem that I have with, like, both the showrunners that we've had 
for more than one series mm. too early to call with Chibnall yeah. is the lack of variety in the way that they run the seasons. Yeah. And I think that the fact they do similar kinds of finales is part of that. Mm-hmm. But I think that even in this series, which I love a lot, you can kind of see Davis getting into the groove of some things that are going to kind of become more annoying slash difficult later on. Um, mm. One of them is the like mimetic phrase. Yes. Um, which I think for Bad Wolf, I... Still quite like I don't I like I I can partly because I've I, this is my reasoning behind it okay mm-hmm. so the bit where she sat in like the um is it like a basketball court with or like a car park with Mickey oh yeah um and there's the graffiti that says Bad Wolf my kind of rationale for the Bad Wolf thing is that some at least one of like one of them maybe that one was like coincidence somebody just happened to graffiti bad wolf say around those walls but then in seeing that she remembers all the times that she's that she's noticed it and so Mm. she decides to leave it as like a message for herself so it is a paradox because obviously Mm. she's already seen it that's how she knows that she needs to do it but it's not like a completely random idea and that the bad wolf thing just came from nowhere the bad wolf did at least have like some original origin point yeah but i don't mind that because I think that because it was the first time it was done it was quite good Hmm. but then you have Torchwood and then you have Harold Saxon and then you have like whatever the next thing was I can't remember remember. but there was definitely something and there's also like the possible contractual obligation to have the doctor kiss the companion like Mm. once per series until the Capaldi era and like I don't like that. I don't know why they kept doing it like every single series. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Even with Donna, where like the whole point was that they yeah. don't have that kind of relationship. And I know that it's like, oh, it's the most shocking things you could think of doing, but it's mm-hmm. like, but you still put that in the series. Mm-hmm. So when the Doctor and Rose kiss in this finale, there is no real reason for them to do a kiss rather than any other like way of transferring the like TARDIS energies. Yeah. But if that was, like, the only time that it happened as, like, a oh, we're going to kiss to do a thing that doesn't really need to have a kiss, yeah. but we're going to do it because then we can kiss, then I wouldn't mind, but because I know what's coming. Like, for example, I don't actually mind Jack kissing them both when he's saying no. goodbye. I, that I like felt, that, like, actually. on yeah. brand for Jack and kind mm. of fitting with, like, the flirtatious banter that he's had with both of them. Yeah. Um, it felt right for his character and both of their characters. But I yeah. just feel like... Although there's maybe although there is some like chemistry between Rose and the Doctor, it was a weird time to have that like pay yeah. off in that way. Especially because there is <laughs> it feels weird saying this in relation to Doctor Who, but there's a bit of an age gap. Like both in the way that he looks, <laughs> oh, yeah. but also in the age that he in fact is. Well that's that's something that that's a problem I have with romance and Doctor Who in general. Because even when he looks like David Tennant and he looks young, at the end of the day He's 900 years old. Mm. Uh, he's significant. Like, I'm not saying this to, like, downgrade Rose or say that she's not capable, mm. but mm. he is extremely powerful. Yeah. Like, you know, and knowledgeable. And, like, if look, if this was a 19-year-old girl with a, with a 60-year-old man, people would find that creepy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, like, thing, mm. the thing is that, like, it depends on the circumstances. Mm. So yeah. I'd be like... Even in that circumstance, I'd be like, hey, 
if they're happy and the relationship works for them, mm. then that's cool. Mm. But like, I'd be like hesitant about that. And I feel like maybe in the tenant era, they, you could argue that they like earn that relationship with Rose. Mm. I don't know if I necessarily would mm. argue that myself. But I think that you could maybe say, oh, well, you know, she's just special. And like, even though he's much older, they have like this connection. They can't like escape. Mm. But the fact that he continues to have those connections mm. yeah. with like other humans is kind of odd. Because you would think that if you had such a long, like functionally immortal being, you would be looking for someone in your... Yeah. Like maybe Jack. I don't know. Like he's around <laughs> for a really long time. <laughs> but yeah, you'd think that you'd be very cautious about that because I mean it's, it's something that you have to think about in for example like D&D like where you can have like half elves and stuff like mm. the relationship between like a really long lifespan being and like a really short one mm. in comparison so it's kind of weird that like from this point onwards like they tend to just sort of ignore that yeah I guess you could see like each regeneration as a kind of new beginning, but that's clearly not entirely how it works. But the uh, the new series in particular likes to have the Doctor point out his age, mm. like mm. quite frequently, and so that <laughs> doesn't help matters. Yeah. There's also one point I can't remember when it is in one episode. I feel like it might be with Tennant, where someone says to him, a human character says, "Oh, we must look like children to you." Yeah, which is another reason why I find it really dodgy. Yeah, I can't remember the episode, yeah. but I remember the quote. Especially because I think that, like, even in the example we were giving, you were giving of like a sixty-year-old and a nineteen-year-old. Yeah, that's still significantly different from say a sixty-year-old and a thirty-year-old or something. Because yeah. mm. even though that's still a big yeah. age gap, you're like, oh well, you know, they're grown-ups. Mm. Yeah. But a 19-year-old mm. is kind of at that point where, like, obviously yeah. it's not like really creepy mm. because. 19 is an adult but like mm, yeah. you'd be like oh that's weird what are they getting out of this relationship mm. and i think that it does sort of come up against those kinds of questions and yeah sure. it's just a bit i don't like the what i can't escape thinking of as like the contractually mandated kiss because yeah. i was like convinced that there must be some sort of rule about it when i was watching it as like a teenager because it happened every series for such a long time i was like okay someone along the lines has said you've got to get a kiss in every season yeah. to like spice things up but i don't know if that is like an official thing but it's so weird and the pretexts get so flimsy yeah. to the point where like when it's like the doctor and clara i mean like the 11th doctor yeah. there's just not even any like yeah. they just like they just kiss like and then that's like cool i'm off to see river <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on all of that. It's, it's not something I've ever particularly responded to. For all that, like, um, you know, I, I get the kind of the abstract emotion of the Doctor Rose relationship in episode, or like Doomsday again. There's still kind of a a weirdness to it that is very hard to get around. So you created an army of Daleks out of the dead. That makes them half human. Those words are blasphemy! Do not blaspheme! Do not blaspheme! Do not blaspheme! Everything human has been purged. I cultivated pure and blessed Dalek. 
Since when did the Daleks have a concept of blasphemy? I reached into the dirt and made new life. I am the god of all Daleks! Worship him! Worship him! Worship him! I have one more thing that I want to talk about uh, before we move on, which I've already teased, which is the um, the Emperor Dalek. Oh, I'm excited for this. Um, oh boy. Yes. <laughs> um, more to love. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the funny things about the Daleks is that they come with a baked-in kind of theological register in a weird way because they have a creator, a specific creator, who occupies a weird place in uh, Dalek culture. Sometimes Davros does seem to be kind of venerated. Other times he seems to be kind of the old man in the corner. Yeah. Oh um, my god, Dad. <laughs> yeah, pretty much that. And so the most effective uses of them are kind of to have flirtations with both, actually. But the Emperor Dalek is something a bit different. Because the Emperor Dalek is conceiving of itself as a god. Which is an interesting position to be in. It refers to itself repeatedly as a god. It talks about like even having a concept of blasphemy. And the weird thing is that I think of this as a kind of inverted mirror of the Doctor. Mm. Because the the Doctor will be referred to as a lonely god. I, I, is it Madame de Pompadour who does that? Or is it someone yeah, else? Yeah, I think so. I think so, yeah. Um, which is kind of a, a running theme of the day, particularly the Tenant era. And, like, e- even, I think, there are elements of Matt Smith and, to a slightly lesser extent, Capaldi's tenures where you can see them as kind of trickster gods, which is a, a kind of thing that has been going on throughout the history of Doctor Who, really. Plays with that kind of iconography in, I mean, actually, an episode like Curse of Fenric is a good example of playing with that kind of self-consciously mythological register. Mm. And so what you have here is a Dalek. Using that kind of um, that kind of register, that kind of language about itself, and it's hard to know how to take that because, on the one hand, um, if it is a mirror for the Doctor, and I absolutely take it that way, uh, whether intentionally or otherwise, then is that in itself a critique of the Doctor as a kind of self-created deity, mm-hmm. or if if not, is it just is it something that's kind of implicit? Uh, or is is this meant to be two kind of a kind of Manichaean thing of two dueling perspectives of like the benevolent god and the evil god? Uh, is it some kind of like I don't know even some kind of strange Gnostic iconography going on there? Mm. Especially given that you have uh, an evil god with like a horde of demons at its command, and then I think that again brings up the. Um, if you expand that out, what's Davros in this equation? Davros, who is the creator of all those demons, who is the creator of the Emperor Dalek, uh, albeit indirectly. I, I don't have answers for any of this, by the way. Mm. I just think it's a strange register that the show places itself in. And as I say, it this kind of epic register uh, and the notion of the Doctor as mythological figure, actually, is something that the new series plays with a lot like and as a self-created mythological figure i mean even if you think of something like um i can't remember if it's silence in the library or forest of the dead where he threatens the vashta narada by saying like you're in a library look me up i wish i could do that yeah (laughs) 
I think that's cite uh, my articles. <laughs> <laughs> One of the big problems I have with the Rusty Davis era again is grandstanding. Mm. Mm. I hate all the grandstanders. Like, like that that one you referred to that episode that like I think he has about three different short lines then it cuts back to the Vashner and it's just it's so over the top like, I'm the doctor and you're the, in the biggest library in the universe yeah <laughs> I really don't like although it, in the interest of fairness that episode mm. is written by Stephen Moffat yeah, um, yeah that's true I think that I one of the things that I don't like about the new series is they're like is is the is these comparisons of the Doctor with a God? Yeah. Because I prefer to think of him as just like a dude, mm. like a dude with a really long lifespan who can travel through time and space. But what I like about the classic series is that he is kind of just like some guy. Yeah. Who shows up and like? Mm. You see, I'm gonna disagree slightly here mm-hmm. with this. So I'm not a fan of the grandstanding, like I said. But I'm also, I also have concerns about, about him just being a character, going through time and space. We'll get on to this when we get to McCoy. But I, my preference is for the kind of McCoy era, mysterious, manipulative figure, mm. who is godlike in that sense. Mm. You don't know who he is, and he's planning things out. But it's not done in the over, t- over always over the top way, grandstanding way. The new yeah. series does it. I, I, my concern with when he's just a dude going through time and space is what Andrew Cartmel says about him losing control of his destiny. But we'll get on to that. I <laughs> guess. I guess maybe my issue is when it's mm. like explicit, like mm. really, yeah. like yeah, mm. yeah, because when it's over the top. And, yeah, because yeah. like. That. I don't know. I think it's kind of cool if it if it would be like a bit more ambiguous, like what his role in the universe is. Yeah, maybe. I, I think this is one of the things I like about Capaldi actually, um, because I think especially in his last series, he kind of um, his his Doctor comes to stand in for. Actually, it's throughout his tenure, but his Doctor is like that bit more mysterious, that bit uh, more removed from the audience. I think, which is something mm-hmm. I quite like. And especially in his last series, there's a palpable sense of him not actually really knowing what his influence is. Like, he he has that whole strand in that series of trying to be kind, which is something, like, I would actually say is, like, the moral message that I kind of would want to take from Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Now, I I think I'm I'm broadly with you, Jacob, in that I, I like the Doctor to be, to have that kind of, that role of being a kind of grand figure in some way like i kind of quite pointedly mentioned curse of fenric in that regard because i i i adore that idea of the again the the interplay between two huge mythological figures i think are characterized less broadly good and evil in that sense because i think there's Mm. there's more of an equivalence being drawn I like the idea. Uh, it's a, it's a tricky one to parse because I like the idea of a, a doctor, the doctor as a kind of a legendary figure who, in some way, belongs to myth. But I don't like it when that's literalized within the series. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I have um, I I don't love Asylum of the Daleks, but I I do like the idea of him being wiped from the Daleks' uh, kind of data files. I like the idea of there being a blank slate there, and mm-hmm. um, which is something that actually. I think comes up again somewhere in Smith's tenure, but I can't remember exactly where. I think it's towards the end again. 
But yeah, I, li I like the idea of the Doctor being a legendary figure, but not necessarily a figure of legend. If you kind of catch my meaning. Mm. Mm. I'm a Time Lord. Oh, I know you're a Time Lord. You don't understand the implications. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. What's that supposed to mean? It means I've lived for something like 750 years. Oh, you'll soon be middle-aged. Yes! I think it's probably time that we moved on to the rankings, I'm afraid. Yeah. There's much yeah. more that That's I could fine. say. That's fine. Shall I go first? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Cool. I'm going to have to, to like slightly peer at this because I've actually changed my mind over the course of um, our discussions. But right at the bottom, I'm going to put Boomtown. Um, because I just can't really recommend like it wants to try and do something interesting but it it doesn't even nearly get there I don't think which is a shame but like I mean the one thing I will say in its favour is uh, there are episodes of of Doctor Who that are just on autopilot that are just like you know this is kind of what an episode of Doctor Who looks like. I'm thinking of something like The Curse of the Black Spot, which is just a nothing episode. Um, I don't even really remember what that is from the words that you just yeah. said. Well, <laughs> we'll be doing it in a few episodes. Oh. It's in Series 6. Oh, God. Hype. Um, but yeah, it's, it's better than that because it's aspiring to something, at least. Oh, I can do, yeah, I can do a top 10. So that was number 10. Number 9. Number 9. Number 9. Number nine. <laughs> um, anyway, at number nine, we have The End of the World, which I've actually been significantly talked down on, I have to say, in the course of this. Because as I, I kind of thought of it as kind of fine, but the more I think about it, the less I think of it. I, I like the kind of the iconography of it, I like the imagery of it, but I, I can't help but feel the more I think about it that it's... It's... it's an episode that is really failing at what it's trying to do. It's not. It's. It's not quite. It's again. I can see what it's trying to do. It's just not quite getting there, which is a shame. Uh, I think it's. It's trying a lot harder than Boomtown is, and there are there are more things that I like in End of the World, and I would say that my number eight and my number nine are very very close. Mm. My number eight being Aliens of London World War Three, which again, I think I could probably launch a more substantive critique of than the End of the World. But, again, it's playing with some interesting ideas, and I think it lays some interesting groundwork. What I was talking about before in terms of it centering on the companion's family and her world and that kind of thing, I think is a really interesting element that it brings to the show. Uh, and so it's kind of weirdly an episode that I'm quite glad exists, even if I don't necessarily think a huge amount of the actual content. And on a vaguely similar note, number seven is The Long Game, which I... Again, I admire in some ways. I admire that it's reaching for something. I admire that it's trying to do... It tries to have a message. It tries to kind of... It's aspiring to a particular kind of aesthetic. Uh, and I think it has some success. But I also think it's not quite sufficient. It does, just doesn't quite get there. And again, I think that's a shame. Because it's a more interesting episode than I used certainly used to give it credit for. Number six is The Unquiet Dead, which it's fine. <laughs> Again, it's, it's fine. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's got the issue of the kind of inadvertent xenophobia, which is a shame. 
but is not something I'd massively hold against it in the way that I would in some of the more substantive critiques of some of the episodes I've already mentioned. And again, it's it's one of the, I've I've said this a few times, but it's it's one of those things that like it's it's sort of laying a baseline for something Doctor Who will do better, and the new series will do better in the future. Uh, number five, it, right in the middle as it should be, is Rose, which again sets a good template and does a lot of the necessary heavy heavy lifting that it needs to do without being particularly remarkable or spectacular in its own right. I think number four. Bad Wolf Party of the Ways. Again, I really, really like aspects of what this one's doing. I have I have my criticisms, which we've kind of gone through, but I think I I think the, the Daleks, despite my misgivings, generally work in this one. Uh, I just think it's a, kind of the start of Slippery Slope. I, I really, really like the Emperor Dalek. I really like that kind of, that register that it's operating in. And I think, I, I think it's, a good end to the Ninth Doctor story, which is something we didn't really talk about. Mm. I think, as much as I would have loved to see much more of Christopher Eccleston, I think it's a good send-off for him. It's a better send-off than several other Doctors I've gotten, so mm. there's that at least. Number three, I debated a lot over my top three, and I've, I've swapped them around even in the course of this recording of this episode, but these episodes, really. But... I've actually stuck to my original order. So number three is Father's Day, which I really, at one point, I was very strongly considering putting it at number one. Uh, these top three are very close in my affections. It's an episode that really pleasantly surprised me. I think it's just really lovely. It's got real emotional intelligence to it, uh, and a real kind of cerebral intelligence as well, I think. It's doing a lot of interesting things, and I've, I have I really have no criticism of it whatsoever. So much as it was a bit strange that Ambassadors of Death came at number two last time around, despite me having nothing bad to say about it. It, it almost seems unfair to Father's Day only to have it at number three. But the problem is that I think the other two are so, so good at what they do, despite having flaws, that I kind of had to leave it there. Number two is Dalek, which is the best Dalek story of the new series. One, probably one of the three best Dalek stories of the entire series. I think it's... Um, actually, I, I think I would probably put it on a par, maybe equal footing with Jubilee, the story it was originally based on. But what Dalek really, really does, as we've talked about, is establish the exact right threat level for the Dalek. And so it reintroduces this crucial aspect of the series for its kind of reintroduction to a, a general audience. And number one is obviously The Empty Child the Doctor Dances, which is... On a kind of craft level, it's just one of the, one of the, if not the best, two-parter uh, of the new series. It's beautifully constructed. Uh, as, we, as we said, every aspect of it is kind of setting up to the overall structure of the thing. Uh, every, every facet of it is signaling towards, if not the finale, at least something that's coming up. It's a... a I would say also a masterpiece of, of script writing from that point of view alone. I also think it's, it, there's a real intelligence to it. Uh, again, as with Father's Day, a real cerebral intelligence and a real emotional intelligence. The d depiction of the, um, the various relationships that Nancy has actually with the children, with her own child, and uh, while it's not drawn very much with Dr. Constantine, uh, are really quite affecting. And uh, as I say, I think it's it's very very cleverly rooted in its setting so that's my top 10 mm -hmm. 
Who wants to go next? I can go next. Okay. Yeah, do you want to go? Um, okay. Just because you happen to be the one that both of us were looking at <laughs> yeah. in that moment. So For guidance. <laughs> at number 10, we have... This is very close. The End of the World. Ooh. Ah, okay. Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay. I can't stand the superficiality of it, as I've said. As has been quite rightly pointed out, the the treatment of gender and just practically everything is not good not on point at all um yeah i just i don't really have anything good to say about it number nine but really to be honest if i could i'd be putting these at joint tenth um is boomtown which again totally superficial Dull uh, is clearly trying to do something, but it just doesn't work. It's pretty much everything I've said already, yeah. Number eight, Aliens of London, World War Three. Tonally, it doesn't fit together. I think the, the satire is kind of grating against a lot of the really immature humour within it. And then all of that is also not really fitting together with the kind of more domestic aspects of it and the the root the stuff that's rooted in the family and then obviously on top of that and this isn't necessarily an aesthetic judgment but i also i'm not keen on where it's going politically as well what would you else say about that um seven is the long game which has gone up a lot in my estimation i think yeah as you said it's clearly trying to reach for something and i commend it for that much as I find it problematic, I think it's a really interesting idea to come back to it later on in Bad Wolf and the Park of Ways. But I, I still think it, it lacks something. It's There's sort of a soulless element to it, I feel. I, d- I don't get the same emotional resonance as I do for some of the other episodes, particularly mm-hmm. some like Father's Day. Six, I have The Unquiet Dead because it's just fine (laughs) (laughs) to coin a phrase yes five I mean this is virtually the same as yours I have Rose (laughs) yeah because it's just it's a solid episode I think it sets things up really economically and that's why it's higher than some of the other solid episodes yeah, I think it's a it's a good introduction to the series but it's nothing spectacular before I have Bad Wolf and the Parting of the Ways which may seem surprisingly high given how critical I was of some of it, but I think there's a distinction between what I think about it politically and the fact that I think it's largely entertaining, works well to tie the series together. The regeneration itself is is very well done, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, it's nice the way in which he tries to kind of reassure the viewer as he goes through it and sort of explains it. Mm. And that works really well in terms of introducing the concept to the audience. Yeah. So that's all great. I really like the theological aspects with the with the Daleks as well. And again, this idea of the Doctor coming back to somewhere and seeing the impact that he's had, whilst I think it's problematic in terms of how it's going to certain dominant political narratives at the time, I don't think that's relevant. What's relevant is that it's an interesting idea. It's not relevant in terms of where I'm placing it anyway. Uh, It is relevant in other ways. Um, And then number three, I have Dalek. I think it's a really good introduction to the Daleks as a a villain in the new series. Again, as you said, it sets up the scale of the threat really nicely. 
I didn't put it higher because I I do find it a little bit over the top, which is my main issue with Russell T Davies era in general. But yeah, I think I think largely it works. I don't, that's a very minor criticism on the whole. I think it works very well. Number two, Father's Day. I think it's got good kind of emotional resonance to it. I really like what it's doing with time and its portrayal of history and the way it's thinking very self-reflexively about that uh, and how it's thematically tying together the monster into all those elements. And then at number one, I have The Empty Child and the Doctor Dances for all the reasons that have mentioned, uh, really intricately plotted, well thought out. Uh, and I think it reaches real heights that, in spite of the flaws that it has, mean that I have to put it at number one. So mm. that's mine. Um, so just to briefly remark on like the book, it, although I queried remark. some of... <laughs> Mark, 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 remark on Mark's marks. Mm. Although I queried some of the like amount out of ten he gave, it turns out that his rankings, if we put them in a ranking, broadly follow the shape of not to spoil anything... All of us, <laughs> except for the fact that he puts Unquiet Dead like at the top on yeah. a par with Empty Child Doctor Dances, I think. Right. So that seems like a bit of an over, because mm. it's fine. I mean, like, it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, so actually, we're not too different from what a roughly contemporary opinion is. But anyway, so my number ten. <laughs> Toxic sludge so powerful the Slitheen could sell it for megabucks. <laughs> Boomtown. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, like, there are definitely worse episodes of Doctor Who, but it just is, like, the standout yeah. worst in yeah. this series yeah. for all the reasons I've mentioned. Number nine is Aliens of London World War Three. I think I just don't like the Slitheen very much. Um, but it was close between that. Actually, I should say that... Um, in some ways, the discussion that we've had has kind of confirmed the top and bottom rankings that I have, mm. but the middle is kind of like, it could go either way, but this is like the best I can do. But um, yeah, Aliens of London World War Three. then slightly above that at number eight is The End of the World. I think the reason why that came above the Aliens of London World War Three is partly because of my like slightly fond memories of it. Mm. But I feel like in terms of establishing the idea of going to the future and, like, the different kinds of, like, aliens that are out there, it's, you know, solid. And I think partly for nostalgia, it got the edge over the Slitheen. Number seven, Long Game. It's better than I remembered. Um, I still think that there's, like, flaws to it, but I think there's also some interesting ideas. At number six, I have Bad Wolf slash Parting of the Ways. Now... What dragged that down is the fact that, as may have been indicated by the discussion, I don't like Bad Wolf very mm. much. However, I, however much I like Parting of the Ways, it kind of, it's unfortunate that we are necessitated to count them as one story because I think mm. that like it could have ranked very differently. You should say actually at this point, um, of the two parters this for this series, that was the only one that I was tempted to consider as two stories mm. for pretty much that reason. Mm. But I think that we kind of came to the realisation that they're too inextricable yeah. and are commonly thought of as one story. So yeah. we ha- yeah. But yeah. There will be two parties that we think of separately. But, mm. uh, yeah. 
So um, number five, or should that be number fine? It's the Unquiet Dead, <laughs> the most just fine of all the stories. Mm, I think it's fine. <laughs> I actually, um, I do quite like the debate about whether they, whether it's fine for the girls to use the bodies. I think that's quite interesting. It is I, fine. Turns out it's fine. It turns out it's fine <laughs> that they can, and um, I like. Charles Dickens's contribution to actually helping solve the problem, which most of the historical figures like don't necessarily yeah, do, he does fine, um, yeah. <laughs> and that's how I think of him as an author as well. So it all <laughs> it all comes together nicely. And number four, Rose. Um, again, po- possibly this was boosted by nostalgia, but I do like the Autons, so I think mm. that maybe they kind of made that for me. Also, the ongoing intrigue about the lottery money. Hmm. At number three, I have The Empty Child slash The Doctor Dances. Not because there's anything wrong with it, necessarily. Like, I've said a lot of very complimentary things. It's just that I think this series is really, really good. Hmm. And my top three are, like, all amazing. And, yeah, there's the same top three as everybody else. I don't know why I'm (laughs) acting like this is some big revelation. Number two, I have Dalek. I think that Christopher Eccleston's performance is really what makes this for me. I think this mm-hmm. is like, I think he it's incredible. He really like sells the fear um, and the antagonism between the Time Lords and the Daleks. And it's just, it is a really phenomenal episode. But at number one, we have Father's Day, which was a pleasant surprise watching back how good it is but I also feel like the more I think about it the more it kind of embodies a lot of the things that are what I like about Doctor Who and what I kind of like about entertainment in general I suppose I think that it like pushes a lot of the right emotional buttons for me which is Mm. part of the reason why it's up there but I also like this idea that like ordinary life is important people might think of themselves as ordinary but they still are important even in like the world of Doctor Who where there's big sort of universe shaking events going on and I also particularly am moved by the story of Rose Rose's relationship with her father and the idea of her father and the fact that like when the need arises Pete proves that he is the kind of person that can do these heroic incredible acts and that the events of this episode is what kind of awakens that potential in him and I just it just gets me. It really it really does. So I, I love Father's Day and such a good episode. Mm. But that's my top ten and now I'm getting emotional <laughs> because I'm tired and I'm thinking about Father's Day. <laughs> um well that wraps us up for series one then. Um yeah, I mean, broadly in agreement across the board, mm-hmm. really. Yeah, I mean, I on, a, on another day, Father's Day would have been number one for me, I think. Um, I think generally I would call this quite a strong series. If I were ranking all of the new series, series, uh, I would put it, like, above average, anyway. I love Eccleston. This might be in my top one. <laughs> I'm not sure, but, like, <laughs> it's up there. Yeah. <laughs> Time Lords have this little trick. It's sort of a way of cheating death. Except it means I'm going to change. And I'm not going to see you again. Not like this. Not with this daft old face. 
And before I go... Don't say that. Rose. Before I go, I just want to tell you, you were fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And you know what? So was I. Yeah, I think that uh, we can leave it there. Uh, we'll be with you again uh, quite soon, probably, actually, with a special episode uh, in which we'll be talking about our Doctor Who origins. So, like, how we got into the show and that kind of thing, uh, which I'm really looking forward to, actually. I think that'll be an interesting discussion. Until mm. um, then, uh, thank you for listening. I've been Kieran. I've been Bethan. I've been Jacob. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to Christopher Eccleston's Instagram. Mm-hmm. It's, it's important. Like, if you take one thing from this episode, <laughs> this these episodes, apart from the fact that the Unquiet Dead is fine, it's it's Christopher Eccleston's Instagram. It's it's the place to be. Thank you very much. See you soon. Bye.